You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. joined today by Major General Roland LaJoy, a uh, former office, Army officer, spent 35 years in the U.S. Army in a variety of really interesting positions. Uh, uh, among them, he served as uh, uh, U.S. Army attache at our embassy in Moscow during the Cold War. He served as U.S. defense attache at the U.S. Embassy in Paris. Uh, not long after Desert Storm, he uh, was the first director of the Office of Military Affairs, basically on loan to the Central Intelligence Agency. And then in 1994, he retired from the U.S. Army but continued his service to the government, working uh, in the Pentagon as uh, Deputy Assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Cooperative Threat Reduction, and later spent about, what, six years uh, working uh, jointly uh, in the, er, with the Russians in the U.S.-Russia Joint Commission on POWs and MIAs, a position he held until 2004. But what he's here to talk with us about today is about uh, his work in 1983 to 1986 as chief of a little-known organization in Germany called the United States Military Liaison Mission. Uh, it's a little-known fact that the United States and also the UK, France, and the Soviet Union maintained these uh, military liaison missions in Germany during the Cold War. Uh, General LaJoy, welcome. And just to get started for our audience, can you just briefly explain why these military liaison missions were created and then sort of what they became over time? Right. Well, the, the genesis of the mission goes back to the closing days of World War II. Uh, when the end of the war was in sight and the Allies were making arrangements for uh, occupying of Germany and the control mechanisms that would necessarily be, have to be put in place, it was decided that the military occupying elements would exchange liaison elements so that each would know what the other was doing in their zones of occupation. This was agreed in, in general in 1944-45, but the specific agreements were not uh, inked until 46 and 47. The U.S. one uh, was the last. It was uh, 1947. Straightforward military administrative uh, agreements 
that uh, provided each side with a certain number of people, a type of equipment, what their rights and obligations would be, and what their freedom of uh, access would be to the other zone of occupation, which was total freedom except for those zones where military forces were located. Initially, 46, 47, 48, that's what they did. They were attached to the opposing headquarters. Uh, they gathered innocuous information, uh, provided it back to their, their home headquarters. So early on, it was pretty, just, pretty much just administrative, just literally helping the liaison between these two it was. armed forces that were adjacent to each other exactly. in, in occupied Germany. And occasionally, you might have a, an, uh, an incident where one of your soldiers would, would have been found in the other zone of occupation and you would have had to intercede to, uh, to get him back to the, his uh, proper zone. Uh, now, clearly, these were legal. This was legal access, and so the soldiers, the officers were told to keep their eyes open for other things that might be of interest. Uh, but uh, after 48, this kind of, oh, by the way, keep your eyes open, became the central focus of the missions and remains so. Uh, until the end of the Cold War. And they became basically legalized intelligence collection. They became absolutely legal collection activities. However, you, we need to make a distinction early on that they were authorized to be there. They were accredited to the other headquarters. They wore uniforms. They traveled in vehicles that had uh, plates on them that designated in the Russian language that they were members of the foreign liaison uh, element. Uh, so the activity was not legal or condoned, uh, but the, uh, the, the access that the soldiers had was, uh, was in fact totally authorized. And these liaison missions uh, continued right through the, essentially to the end of the Cold War. Till the end they're, of the Cold War. They're gone now. They are they gone now. Okay. Um, so you took command, or sorry, you became the chief of the U.S. military liaison mission in 1983, held that job for three years. Um, and this was really one of the, you know, very coldest, deepest, darkest times of the, of the Cold War. Uh, what was East Germany like then? How did the East Germans and the Soviets treat you? And what was sort of this, the, the environment, the, 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 the milieu here, uh, you know, in some sense behind enemy lines in Germany, sort of the very center of the Cold War where World War III w would have, but thank God, didn't break out? Well, it was very exciting as an intelligence officer. I had just come from Moscow where I was a military attache. Uh, there we also pursued uh, military activity that we would report back to our, uh, to our headquarters in Washington. But our access was very, very limited. Uh, we were under total surveillance, and uh, we just never had the intimacy with Soviet military activity that we enjoyed as a result of this old World War II arrangement in East Germany. So arriving in East Germany, I was uh, delighted, uh, surprised and delighted with how close we could get to absolute quality military activity. Soviet group of forces was the largest offensive military force in the world at the time. There were five armies, 20 divisions, untold air regiments, missile units, all of this backed up by Warsaw Pact units in Poland and and uh, the, the Belarusian military district. So it was a country, East Germany was a country the size of Ohio that was stuffed with military activity, stuffed with quality military activity. 
So in, in that regard, as an intelligence officer, it was, it was very exciting to be there at that place at that time. How many people did you have in the U.S. military liaison mission, and were they all Army personnel, or who, who were the people, broadly speaking, uh, who, who worked for you? The, the original agreements granted us 14 personnel who were accredited to be uh, at any one time in East Germany. We manipulated those numbers in the sense that we had many more people, but only 14 at one time could go into East Germany. And we, uh, in a legal way, we just made much more use of those 14 passes. So it wasn't 14 people for three years, but it may have been 30 people that were uh, using those passes. Sort of like a, a ball team might have its injured reserve list or something exactly. like that. Okay. Exactly. I don't know that the, the Russians were never crazy about this, but they never, they never stopped the practice either. And were these all U.S. Army personnel, or were they there were, other people from other uh, services? They were uh, primarily Army officers, a good Air Force contingent, and a single Navy representative who was invariably a Marine Corps officer. Uh, these were all all handpicked. On the Army side, being an Army officer and a graduate of the program that produced Russian specialists, we had a school located in Garmisch, Germany, not too far away from us, that graduated uh, young officers. And obviously, somebody interested in becoming, whether he was a combat arms officer or an intelligence officer, wanting to know more about the Soviet military, the mission in East Germany, in East Germany, in Berlin, in the eastern part of East Germany, was, of course, uh, the, the, the assignment of a lifetime. I would go down there and interview all these officers. Invariably, they'd all hold up their hands saying, take me, chief, I want to go. Uh, we would uh, discuss with the staff uh, who had the best qualifications, not only looking for language and area skills, but those people whose judgment would have to be uh, relied upon intense moments, uh, maturity, leadership. Because you're really hanging, out, hanging it out over the edge when you're going out into East Germany you know, are. for days on a time. You're by yourself in a car with an NCO uh, in the middle of nowhere. You have no communications with headquarters. You have no instructions. No, you have instructions before you leave in terms of generally what you should do. But you're not in contact with any headquarters. So we could not task them, and they could not call back for help. So we needed people that were really uh, mature and, and had good leadership skills. And we could pick, we could handpick whoever we want. The Air Force had a similar system, all handpicked volunteers. And the Marine guy we had was a, was a triple threat. He was a superstar. He was a, he was a pilot. He, he was, as a Marine Corps officer, he understood infantry uh, tactics, and he was a brilliant linguist, a graduate of Princeton. So we really had a strong team. Uh, I had never before in the military been associated with such quality people. So you were headquartered then at Potsdam, yes, right outside Berlin? We were, our, our, our formal headquarters was in a villa that the Soviets had provided to us in Potsdam, East Germany. Uh, just on the outside of the border of West Berlin. Uh, most of our administrative offices, most of, most of our, uh, where people lived, uh, was in Berlin it's, itself, in West Berlin. We were more secure and more comfortable there. But our formal headquarters was in this villa that the, uh, the Soviets had provided us back in 1947. And they provided an East German staff to maintain the facility. They provided food for 14 people, even though there might have been only one person there at any one time. And we had reciprocal requirements to provide their mission in Frankfurt, accredited to, to our headquarters in Heidelberg. 
uh, with the same the same wherewithal. So give me uh, give me some sort of sense of what it's like going out on a mission. So a mission is, if I understand correctly, one officer and a non-commissioned officer going with him in a vehicle, which I understand was sometimes specially modified, and you'd roll out the gate and head the, into East Germany, and presumably your first order of business is to lose the people who must be wanting to follow you. Am I right? And, and then what happens? Walk, walk us through, and how long does this go on, and what are you well, doing while you're out there? Okay. The first thing you do is you plan for your mission. Okay. Uh, there's a small uh, research staff at our headquarters in, uh, in West Berlin who would lay out a two- or three-day uh, tour that would take you past a bunch of uh, facilities, static facilities, uh, communications. So like Soviet, Soviet Army bases and things Soviet like that. Army bases. Or, and if we'd heard that there was an exercise going along or a river crossing operation, then you would be cycled around through that area. You want to put your, although this was a target rich environment, if nothing unusual was going on, you would want to try to increase your chances of stumbling across some activity by uh, programming your trip. Then you would leave. The officer was the, the chief of the activity course and the Russian speaker. The NCO was a special trained driver, uh, German speaker, and he would be responsible for the security of the team while they were deployed. You'd go through the Glinicker Bridge, the famous Glinicker Bridge where all our, these spies were exchanged and everything, but in our case it was just a, a, uh, a humdrum crossing. We would show our credentials to the Russian side, uh, quickly go by the East German side, all the gates would be open, and we would head through Potsdam. Invariably in Potsdam we would pick up surveillance, uh, and then we would try to lose that surveillance. Well, being in a Mercedes vehicle that was, uh, had cross-country capability uh, gave you a, a leg up on the East Germans who had these pathetic uh, vehicles that they were trying to tail us with. You try not to be too cocky or arrogant about this whole thing, you, uh, but it would be easy enough to lose them. If you could not possibly shake them, then of course you would not take a tail to an outpost where you wanted to uh, monitor activity. You know, you, you might go on back to the mission, to the Potsdam mission, S stay the night and then try again the next day. Invariably you were able to shake them. Uh, you could get on the Audubon and just go faster than they ever did pull off and you would lose them. Then you would go through your list of, of activities. What you were looking for was not uh, complicated scientific stuff. It was the, the, the enemy order battle, the location, disposition, organization, equipment, training of the Soviet forces. The equipment that you used to harvest this information was also not terribly sophisticated. Cameras with a, a bunch of lenses, recorders, video cameras, uh, and that would be it. You know, some personal comfort uh, items, uh, compasses and whatever. Uh, we never had radio intercept. Uh, we never had radio equipment to monitor our own communications, let alone Soviet communications. Uh, and we just went out there and then just started recording this information. Uh, day after day, recording seemingly innocuous little bits of information, uh, primarily external, about Soviet military equipment. Here comes a piece of vehicle, we've seen it a hundred times, but does it have a new little widget on it? You know, does it have a new uh, 
piece of equipment, a new antenna? What about the numbers on there? What do the numbers tell us eventually when we're going to come back to the headquarters and compare that with what we have uh, to contribute to our order of battle and, and you know, uh, understanding of what the unit structure is? Uh, and you would do this during all the daylight hours. At night, you would uh, try to get some rest, but hoping to make that possibly profitable, you would park near a railroad uh, intersection, a railroad line, where trains with military equipment might be on them. If something happened like that happened in the middle of the night, then uh, you would you know, get up and record that activity. And you're sleeping in your car, right? Or and you're you? sleeping in your vehicle. The vehicle is locked. Uh, yes. Uh, and so, and that's what you would do day after day. Now, if you were an Air Force officer, you cared less about going to a tank trail and seeing if you could find a, a T-64, you know, rumbling along. But you would go to an airfield. You go to a communications site. Uh, you would record all the activity that you saw. So we're talking about just maybe sitting here hidden at the end of the runway, taking pictures of things and counting things. Exactly. If I understand you correctly, as unusual as this job was, uh, a lot of it was, uh, you know, ultimately fairly routine, but I'm sure there must have been some missions that really stood out as, as, as dramatic or, or unusual. Do you have any particular uh, recollections in that regard? Well, I can certainly say that during my period, 83 to 86, there was one mission that in my 36 years uh, in the Army, I had never been so impressed uh, with, uh, with how gutsy uh, an operation this was. It was carefully planned. It involved uh, Major Nicholson, who was killed the next year, and there was no connection at all between these two incidents, and another officer, uh, Clyde Evans, uh, who was a tanker. Uh, we'd had an outstanding requirement to try to uh, determine whether or not one of the tanks, the T-64B, fired uh, anti-tank any missiles through the main battle tank, uh, through, through the main, the main battle gun. gun. And so we knew that there was an installation that had these T-64s. It was in, it was close to the permanent restricted area. Uh, we did a little bit of reconnaissance around it to see how we might get close to it. Uh, we used overhead reconnaissance to figure out which of the buildings close to the fence uh, would have that equipment. Uh, we practiced then with the tank company in Berlin, the U.S. company, getting a person inside the tank and what he might recover from that confined space. Then we launched an operation on a night that we knew we would have a better chance of success which was uh, the anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution on 7 November. Uh, we kind of figured that there probably wouldn't be a sober breath drawn uh, throughout East Germany on that night. We, we sent our team out. They, the driver uh, dropped off the two officers, uh, found a place to hide the vehicle. The individuals got through the fence inside the installation. They then got inside a tank shed where they found a tank that was covered by a tarpaulin. Uh, they got inside uh, that tarpaulin. Uh, one person then was able, with a key that we had received, open the hatch, drop down inside the hatch, and then take perfect photography of the inside of that hatch uh, to include the information that we needed about whether or not this was a tank firing uh, a missile firing tank, and it, and it was. How that person in the middle of the night on a Soviet installation had the presence and the calmness 
with, with perfect focus and without a, a bit of motion, calmly go around and take every single piece of information, overlapping photography, uh, was incredible. And, and when they came back, and we didn't sleep much that night in the West, wondering for the, waiting for those guys to come back. When they came back and those photographs were, were developed, it was, uh, it was truly exciting. It was, it was a gutsy in operation, uh, and, but the information that we recovered was really uh, first rate and, and, and answered a, uh, a, a high priority requirement that we had. Um, you mentioned earlier that there were restricted areas in East Germany that you were supposed to stay out of. Presumably it was much more fun to go in them if, you, if you'd shaken your tails? Well, oddly enough, we tended to respect the restricted areas, which accumulated to perhaps cover 40% of East Germany. So that denied us a lot of the country, uh, but there was so much military activity uh, outside of restricted areas and between restricted areas, uh, uh, between restricted activities, restricted areas, that we were able to get a lot of information. You, you might occasionally, you might occasionally make a mistake, a legitimate mistake, and get into a, a restricted area, a permanent restricted area. You might be pursuing something a convoy that you were following that had some particularly intriguing activity that disappeared into a permanent restricted area and you might follow it a little bit longer. Hot pursuit. In hot pursuit. But you know, I have to in all honesty say that it didn't happen that often. And you might occasionally, if you thought there was truly a quality bit of information in a PRA, in a permanent restricted area, you might mount a special operation, after giving it a lot of thought, to go inside that PRA. Uh, now, you always got in trouble. I was going to say, uh, sometimes inside you were detained or, or, or harassed, I assume. Yes, we were always, of course. Uh, because we were so noticeable uh, and there was so much activity, uh, we would invariably bump into something, some, sometimes literally. Uh, these activities took a, you know, each one had its own, uh, had its had its own drama or or uh, or not associated with it. The funny thing about operating in East Germany was that you never knew when something could blow up in your face. You might be going after a, a highly prized piece of information that you carefully studied and mounted a fairly dangerous uh, operation to go after, and it would go off smoothly and you'd have no opposition. You might then, on a Sunday afternoon, be in between static installations and all of a sudden have a truck come out of an installation, ram you uh, without provocation. Uh, so you never, you never quite knew. You could train to react to uh, incidents that, that you might find, uh, but you never were quite sure what would happen. So people had to be on their toes. And you know, after two or three days, sleeping in a car and not always getting much sleep because of the activity of monitoring, then on your third day, as you got more tired, your judgment could be in, uh, impacted. So you had to be you had to be very careful. So we had, we had a lot of incidents. We had detentions. And these detentions uh, would be, for the most part, innocuous. 
Now, what, what does a detention mean? What's so a happening? detention means that you are no longer able to do your mission, that you're going down, maybe you're passing a convoy. You've got this long convoy that's got nice equipment on it, and you want to capture every single piece. Now, the people, your mission team knows more about that equipment than probably the people that are leading that convoy, because they've been there for three years and they've studied it. So you're going by, and in your recorder, you're carefully recording every single piece of equipment, every turret number, everything you can get, and all of a sudden, the, the, the vehicle in front of you pulls out directly in front of you. Uh, you have to slam on your brakes, and then you notice that somebody pulls in behind you. You are, are frozen in place. Uh, they then ask for your identification, and you, a, a little ritual then occurs that everybody knows their role. They say, give me your identification. You say, let me see the Soviet commandeur who is the local representative. 45 minutes later, this chubby little major would show up, and he would ask for your, he'd show you his credentials, you'd show him your credentials. He would write out a citation, accusing you of blatant espionage, photographing military equipment. Uh, some, some stuff was accurate, some stuff was outrageous. And he'd say, please sign it. And you'd say, you major, you know I don't sign that kind of stuff. And he'd say, okay. And then that would be it. You've lost maybe two or three hours, uh, and then you go on your way. So you've done this little dance, and then they let you go. Exactly. Now, if the East Germans were involved, the dance got more complicated. Uh, the East Germans were, we had a funny relations with the East Germans. This was this country that we were operating in, but we were only accredited to the Soviets. We did not recognize the sovereignty of East Germany, which was an independent country that we had an embassy in. But we did not recognize their sovereignty. So we could, it, it didn't always make sense to blow off a, a traffic cop or whatever, but we could with impunity uh, do that. Uh, if they detained you near an East German installation, the same little Germans who would give you a V for victory sign as you passed them on the highway and they saw the American plates, who gave you a thumbs up, who might even point towards where there are some Soviet forces if you're in a field, a farmer might come and say, no, they left yesterday, but if you go down the road there, I've seen some communications antennas there. Those same Germans, when you were near a German installation, that pride kicked in, and now they want to say, uh-uh, you know, you don't get the same latitude here. They would detain you. They would present themselves, and you would say, bring me the Soviet representative. And that was always, of course, understandably annoying to them. And a Soviet representative would come, and then you would do this little exchange of, of documentation. These Germans are on the side looking at you, uh, invariably annoyed because sometimes this atmosphere between the Russians and the Americans would become a little bit light. Maybe cigarettes were exchanged, the windows were down, you know, documents flowing both ways, you might be, there might be some chuckling. And here are these Germans over the side who've been watching this. The, you're the guys that they captured, you know, and now the, East, the, the Russian partner is about to let us go. And that would happen. So these detentions, you know, were of all kinds of flavors, from totally benign, where you miss an hour, to a little bit more tense, where maybe there was a collision, and you lost more than an hour, and there were formal uh, letters of protest between the two sides. And then there were some some horrible ones that we can discuss later on. Yes, and indeed, I, on March 24, 1985, we lost Major Arthur Nicholson. Right. 
that must have been an, uh, a grim day. Can you tell it us was. what happened? So Nick Nicholson was out with his NCO, Jesse Schatz, uh, on a Sunday afternoon on one of these missions where it was not expected that he was going to bump into anything. It was a Sunday. It was not a training day. Uh, he didn't have any tough targets uh, on his itinerary. Uh, he was always given the, the encouragement to pursue something that might develop. Uh, this was not the case. He went to a facility that was a tank training range directly outside of a garrison. The garrison itself was located in PRA. It was in a permanent restricted area, but the range was not, which, means, which meant in our eyes that the range was, uh, was fair game. So he went there, he looked around, there was a, uh, a series of tank sheds where the tanks would be pulled out and they would use uh, their weapons on this range. And he, he probably looked inside. If he could pull the, pull the doors apart a little bit, he might look inside and see if, there was, if it in fact was the tank that was supposed to be there and was not terribly interesting. Uh, he would look at the training boards that were posted around, uh, notifying the soldiers what they should be aware of in their firing sequences, what the maintenance arrangements were. He might take some pictures of that. He did take some pictures of that. The driver then was, stayed with the car. He was standing up through the sunroof, uh, providing security. As he looked around, he saw a Soviet sentry that they had never seen before. It, this was a, been an easy call. I mean, this is Nicholson is a major, he's a 37-year-old major with a master's degree in Russian studies. Uh, he understands that, you know, going against a 17, 18-year-old kid with a Kalashnikov, you don't, you know, it's you know what to do, which is usually you just put your hands up and say, "Son, you know, be careful now. We don't want anyone to get embarrassed or hurt." And, uh, unfortunately, we never had a chance to have that, that kind of a dialogue where, where Nicholson could have used his, his maturity uh, to his advantage. Uh, as the driver looked around, he saw the, the, uh, the sentry pointing a rifle at them. He yelled back to, the, uh, to his officer, to Nick, uh, and then the first shot rang out and it almost hit uh, the driver who was uh, sitting up through the sunroof. The driver uh, dropped down, closed the sunroof, started backing up towards his officer. Two more shots rang out, and one of those uh, hit Nicholson uh, directly in the chest, severed the renal artery, and uh, he fell down. Uh, we heard him say, uh, the driver heard him say, Nick, I've been shot. And then I suspect within a matter of very few minutes, he had, he had bled to death. Now, uh, the driver tried to render first aid, but the sentry then came out and prevented the driver from getting out of the car. Uh, so even though Nicholson might have died in five to seven minutes, nobody knew. And a, although people started coming to the scene, running to the scene, it wasn't until an hour later that somebody who appeared to be a medic uh, went over to the, uh, to the body and uh, just basically said, Nyet indicating that Nicholson was killed. So this, of course, was the most serious incident in the, in the mission's history. A year before, a French officer, a French non-commissioned officer, had been killed in a, uh, in a deliberate ramming that involved East German forces. Uh, and there had been a lot of rammings and shootings and 
uh, and injuries, but this was the first metal, uh, fatality, and it was, it was obviously quite traumatic. Well, taking all of these things into account then, and, and these, uh, you know, it, it, it may have been a, an exciting and interesting and sometimes fun job, but occasionally there was a, there were prices to be paid. Looking back on all of this then in totality, how would you assess the, the contribution that the, the U.S. And, and also the Allied liaison missions made to the, to the Cold War? See, there's no doubt in my mind that we were the most reliable providers of useful information about Group of Soviet Forces Germany, which was the cutting edge of that, uh, the pointy edge of that spear in, in, in Soviet military. Uh, in many cases, it was not terribly dramatic information, uh, but it was reliable, it was accurate, it was useful. Interestingly, one of the most uh, interesting methods of gathering this information was less the tailing of convoys and the driving through training areas and, and poking around installations than it was going, policing up an area after a Soviet Union had been deployed. The Soviets, for all of their, their paranoia, were quite honestly very sloppy about uh, this kind of discipline. They left the areas in a terrible state. Uh, a lot of bits and pieces of paper and, 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 uh, and even uh, equipment were left behind. Um, we methodically started going through all of these papers, letters that we would find with addresses on them, uh, uh, maintenance uh, sheets uh, that were torn. Uh, we even got so uh, ambitious about, about how, to, how uh, uh, useful this was, uh, that we started uh, even latrines that were in the vicinity of these installations. Uh, and a Soviet military, you know, that is wonderfully equipped on the, uh, on, on the middle and the weapons end did not have wonderful equipment on the toilet paper end. And so manuals, documents, uh, all kinds of things were were used and this is the part where you don't brag about it. this is not very fun or exciting when you're recruiting people to come to the mission this might not have been the first thing that I told them about but it ended up being the most one of the most useful uh, items of information that we would get and by carefully looking through all of these papers uh, and going through the handwriting checking the manuals we eventually from that source alone determined that this, the Soviet military that we always thought was 100% man, fully equipped, ready for immediate offensive operations, the dreaded bolt from the blue, when you looked at their, at their maintenance uh, rosters and manuals, you recognized that, uh, as far on the roster side, there were some, some items that, some, some lines that were empty that meant that the, somebody would have to be mobilized to fill that particular position. You looked on the equipment side and you saw that they were missing some equipment, which allowed you to conclude that they surely could attack from where they were, but if they did, they would not be at 100% manning or fully equipped, which was, I think, a, you know, a very, very interesting piece of information. An important fact for people back Absolutely. in Washington to know. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, we need to end it there. But w one thing I just want to note for the people who are only listening to this 
is that uh, as I've had this uh, discussion today with General LaJoy, you can just see the enthusiasm <laughs> on his face. I, I think I can reasonably infer as a former analyst myself, this was one of the highlights of your career. So I, I thank you for what you've done for, for national defense, and thank you also for a wonderful uh, talk here at the International Spy Museum. My pleasure, Mark. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.